Well, good morning. Praise God. The word of the Lord says in Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Welcome to Trinity Assembly of God this morning. We're ready to worship the King of Glory. I invite you to stand with me. I want to pray over this, this gathering. I want to pray over those that are watching on the live stream. I want to pray over those that are going to watch this later on in the week, that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully in each life that views and responds. Father, we come in Jesus' name to give you praise. We're going to lift our voices in the house today. We're going to shout praises. We're going to 
bring the hallelujahs to roll in this place because you are worthy of all praise. We want to magnify the Lord today. We want to focus in on your greatness, your love, and your mercy. And I pray, Father God, that this day would go down in each of our lives as a great day because we've encountered the mighty God and he's drawn us closer to himself. Father, meet each need today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
days may be darkest, but your light is greater. You light our way, God, you light our way. When evil is rising, you're rising higher with power to save, power to save. seated. Can I have Mark come down the aisle, please? If you are a guest with us today, we want to welcome you to Trinity. If um, you are a guest, please slip up your hands, and Mark will have a contact card 
just put down your information on it so we can keep in touch and let you know the events and different things that are going on here at the church. Um, you're free to go. If, just keep your hands slipped up. And if we could get a loud round of applause for our guests today. Today at uh, 2 p.m. we have our West Park um, Ministries. So if you would like to volunteer or help with that, um, who, who are we meeting with for that? Marsha and Pastor. So if you have any questions about that, meet with them and they can get you some details on that. Um, we had yesterday our food distribution that we do monthly here and it was a wonderful turnout. So if you were able to come out and help us with that and serve the community. Go ahead and give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you for being such a blessing. We have our Wednesday services. We have um, a morning Bible study with Pastor. We're praying on the book of Noah, or sorry, excuse me, Joah. Jonah, goodness, Jonah. <laughs> no, he did not. And then in the evening, we have... Um, family night classes. We have adult Bible study with Pastor again going over 2 Samuel. We have nursery for the little ones, girls and boys ministries, um, rangers and girls ministries, and then we have youth services. All that starts at 7, so if you have nothing to do on Wednesday, please come out and join us. Next Sunday, we have a food fundraiser for the youth. We'll be doing meatball subs after the service, and that will be in the fireside room downstairs after the service. So if you can come out, support the youth, we'd love to see you and enjoy a time of fellowship. And that is all I have for you. So if you, everyone wants to join me in standing and we can enter back into a time of worship. I believe in the sun I believe in the risen one I believe I overcome By the power of His blood Amen Song, join the world. 
before you're seated, could we just give him some worthy praise in the house? Lift his name. Give him glory and honor and praise. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. leading us into the presence of God. Hallelujah. You may be seated. If you've been with us for any time at all, you know that I do not relinquish the pulpit very often. And uh, on occasion, I do so. But usually, I'm out of town. But today, I'm giving the pulpit over to Pastor Jamie, who's going to come and share. Many years ago, I told him, well, not so many years ago, but some many years ago, I told him that when God birthed the message in his heart, let me know, and we'll make a, a spot for it. And so I'm thrilled to turn over the pulpit today to Pastor Jamie. There he is. How about a welcome? Excuse me one minute while I work out technology. Oh, did it just die? Of course it did. Okay. Let's see here. Wait, Te technology, it's on me. Hold on. We, this always happens, you know. We can't, this is proving pastor right. He always says, that's why I don't do technology. So I always prove him, I always got to prove him right. So as soon as it decides it wants to work out on my end. What is going on here? Hold on. Here we go. Here we go. I would. Let's see. Hey, hey and there, and there it is. Come on. <sighs> For the love of all that's good and holy. Good morning, everybody. Trying not to be too cliche here, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord. No kidding. I didn't, like, I knew the importance of corporate worship. But I didn't fully, I, I suppose I didn't fully understand the depth of it until COVID hit. You know, we had like that three weeks where we didn't come. Like I was still here doing the worship. I even sat amongst the puppets while pastor preached. And it still wasn't the same. And so to be here with other believers in corporate worship is absolutely essential. And anyone who tells you you could be a Christian and not go to church, technically that's true. The thief on the cross didn't go to church not one day. But I'll tell you what, had he lived the next day, what would he, he would have gone to his home, his whole family would have been saved, they would have been baptized, and then he would have been a part of a body of believers 
that would have been meeting on a regular basis. So this is important, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Pastor, I do want to say thanks for letting me be up here. I know that it's not easy to give up the pulpit because, you know, there's so many heretical things being taught. So many, and not just on secondary and tertiary issues, but on primary ones, ones about the gospel. People are, are, are giving in on certain things, on inerrancy of scripture, things that we as evangelicals, as Christians, hold true and have since the foundation, the beginning of the church. So I know it's not easy for a pastor to give up the pulpit, not because of some selfish reason, but out of protection for the people that God has given him uh, dominion over, his sheep. It's hard to do that, and so I, I do want to say thank you. So this little thing, you guys are familiar with this, right? Uh, it's a QR code. I do this every time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> oh, I love technology. So what you do is, you, if you have one of them smartphones, one of them dumb phones, turn your camera on like you're going to take a picture. Then you point it up there at that doohickey, and a little link should pop up that you could press, and it'll take you to a little Dropbox that has all the notes for today and, um, and all the PowerPoint slides. This will be up at the end if you didn't get it now. And if you want me to email you any of this information, I will, or give you a hard copy, I can do that. And so that's, now that's all out of the way, all the preliminaries. Let's pray. Father God, we do worship you. I thank you for this opportunity that I have to be a vessel. I pray, Father God, that you would cancel the man and that truth would come through me and that our, our minds, our hearts, our minds would be open to receiving from the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father God, that the church corporately would be good Bereans and that if it doesn't align with Scripture, they will throw it away. I pray, Father God, that none of my words would lead anyone astray and this would be edifying for everyone. We thank you that you're in the house. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I go the wrong way. Okay. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. But before we get there, I want to do a, lay a little groundwork because context is important. We're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul. And he was the author of the book of Philippians. And so we want to get to know him a little bit better. The Apostle Paul authored 13 letters or books of the Bible. Now those, some are in dispute, not with me. I attribute all 13 books to the Apostle Paul, even though some uh, say otherwise. The early church fathers agreed all 13 books came from the Apostle Paul, and who am I to dispute the early church fathers when there's no good reason to? So we see the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters, four letters were written to people. Okay, they were written to people, but they also had some benefit overall. That's why they were included in the canon. So the letter was written by Paul to a specific person like Timothy or Philemon. They would read it and they realized, hey, this has benefit for everyone. And so it was kind of handed over as one of those letters then that began 
to be circulated and then ultimately ended up in the canon. So those four were written to people. The other nine were written to churches themselves. So like the book of Romans was written to the church in Rome. And the book of Philippians, which will be in this morning, was written to the church at Philippi. So let's talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul and let's look at the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul was born, not the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus. And he was born around 6 AD. I got no laughs? I worked hard on that slide. Put the binky in and then the rattle. Jeez. Okay, so he was born around 6 AD. He was actually born Saul, right? And then the early years of his life, as a young man, he studied at the feet at probably one of the greatest rabbis in Jewish history, Gamaliel. Dude was a smart dude, which makes the Apostle Paul a smart dude. So he studied at his feet early on, and then he had a Damascus Road experience. Around 35 AD, he was headed to persecute Christians. He didn't like Christians. Matter of fact, he hated them. He thought that Christians were heretical, that they were taking down kind of the Jewish, normal Jewish beliefs, and that they needed to be exterminated. That's pretty much what he thought. So he was en route, um, at best, to, to imprison Christians, and at worst, to kill them, when Jesus bodily appeared to the Apostle Paul and said, yo, what's the story? Why are you doing this? And at that moment, he had that experience. That experience was so real to the Apostle Paul that he went from riches to rags. Most people want to go from rags to riches. My man went from riches to rags, and he did knowing what the consequences would be. He knew how much the Jewish um, the high priest and, 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 and those in the, in the know, how much they hated the Christians and wanted to get rid of them. He knew that by doing this, he was now going to have a target on his back. He knew that he was giving everything up that he had. He had some power, and it, it looked as if his life's trajectory was up. So he gave all that away to become one of these followers that he was trying to kill. So we have that, um, that Damascus Road experience where, where he is now transformed because he bodily saw Jesus. And there's some time in between there, but then he has his first missionary uh, adventure. He goes on a missionary journey to a bunch of different cities. He does that. He goes on his second missionary journey. And it was at this time that he established the church in Philippi. And from what we could tell from scripture and some of the early church writings, the church of Philippi is a pretty good church. Like they had some small issues like any other church, but, but they weren't like some of the really, some of the churches that were like rotten. You know, there were some churches that had just gone south. And the church of Philippi wasn't one of those churches. They were a pretty decent church. And so that was established during his second missionary journey. He has a third missionary journey, and then he winds up in prison. Now, the interesting thing about this is this doesn't seem like a good thing for the Apostle Paul. 
right? He doesn't, like, go into jail, and, like, not the kind of jail we think of, but the jail back then was miserable. If people from the outside didn't bring you provisions, you were going to die, and you were going to be in some of the worst conditions you could think of. So it was a horrible condition. So that didn't look too good for the Apostle Paul. But guess what happened? Boy, did that turn out for our benefit. Boy, did that turn out for our... He wrote most of his letters while he was in prison. And he did so probably because he had mm, little time on his hands. Not much to do in prison. So he started to write. And that was when he wrote the book of Philippians, his letter to the church at Philippi. And then ultimately the Apostle Paul dies around 67 AD. He was, of course, martyred. So now having given you some context, let's now stand for the reading of God's word. The way you get to it is you turn to the New Testament and you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. That's how you get there. So it's Philippians. We're going to start in chapter 3, beginning in verse Number seven, Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse seven. The apostle Paul says this, but what things were gained to me, these things I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is, uh, which is not from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead." You may be seated. So some of you might be saying, huh? Yeah, listen, the Apostle Paul was brilliant, but he was also pretty wordy, okay? Sometimes you have to break these things down. Sometimes it takes a minute. And you know what? That's kind of what Bible study is all about, isn't it? It's about taking the word of God, slowing down, reading the words, and trying to understand what the words mean, what the words meant to the original audience and then what those words if anything have any application to my life so let me see if I could try to interpret a little I think he said something like this my conversion from Judaism to the way which is what Christianity was called then was more than just a net gain it was much more the things I thought were important such as power and influence obedience to the law those are all worthless compared to my relationship with Jesus. I don't have to earn my way to God because Jesus has done it for me. Making me right with God was the big thing, but I also get a relationship with God, resurrection power. I get to partner with God, not just in my success, but in my suffering. And one day I'll be resurrected too. Now, all of those things make a lot of sense to me except for one what is this resurrection power that he speaks of 
that's what we're talking about this morning. I had to lay some foundation before we kind of get to the goods. What is this resurrection power? What did he mean by that? Well, it seems as I read the text and some of the commentaries, this is what I come up with. Resurrection power is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's been given to us by God through his Holy Spirit to accomplish his work here on earth in us and through us. Let me repeat that. Resurrection power, it's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's been given to us by God through the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work here on earth in us and through us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, for a long time and even up until the moments before I stepped onto this stage, I have a hard time believing that. I'm going to be really honest with you. I have a hard time believing that. That that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in me? Really? God, have you seen my life? Have you seen my mistakes? Have you seen my imperfections? And yet still? But this is one of those times when I need to separate what I feel from what is the truth. There are many things that we feel that we ought not feel. You know, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful and wicked. Sometimes we feel a certain way and it's just not the truth. So, my question now is, how can I know that this resurrection power is even available, even a real thing, let alone could be in me? I think we can do that through what the apostles Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He talked about the resurrection. If it happened, we got it. If it didn't, we should be pitied. We really should, giving our whole lives. I mean, the direction, the compass of our life is pointed and aimed at Jesus Christ, his ethics and morals as he lived on this life and what the Bible says. So if the resurrection didn't happen, then boy, are we the dummies. So it boils down to this. Did the resurrection really happen? Did it happen? Was it a true historical event? Or, or was it like Bigfoot? Like a historical, like it's just an, an anomaly, like a, like a myth. That's the question, but that's the question. We can't presuppose the question. We, we have to find out which is true. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to figure that out this morning, and then we're going to talk more about the resurrection power, but I think people don't understand the weightiness of this particular decision. Think about it for a minute. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated upon humanity or ever will. I'll be so bold as to say it's the greatest hoax that ever will have been perpetrated on humanity. Billions 
upon billions, upon billions of people giving their entire lives to something that is false. But if it's true, if the resurrection is true, then it is the pinnacle, it is the greatest historical event of all time. Past, present, or future. There will not be another historical event that has anywhere near the significance that this does. So this one question, this one possible event in human history is that thing. It is that deciding point. So how do we decide whether or not a historical event is, well, historical? Well, I like to use what has been called the minimal fact argument. And for anybody who's been here for any length of time, when I've preached before, I've done some things on the resurrection, so this might sound a little familiar. Now, the minimal fact argument for the resurrection is this. I take, now there are anywhere between 12 and 16 of these minimal facts, but I only take seven. These seven data points in history are agreed upon by virtually all scholars of antiquity as being 100% historical fact. And this runs the gamut. It runs the entire, from atheist uh, New Testament scholars and historians to Christian New Testament scholars and historians and everybody in between. And when I say virtually all, I'm talking between 95 and 100% because you can't get anybody to agree 100% on anything. If I post, we should love everybody on Facebook, I, in, in the first five minutes, I get some people challenging that. Right? You can't get people to agree on anything. So 95 to 100% is pretty darn good. Now, there's only one exception. The empty tomb gets about 80, 85%, which is still amazingly high, amazingly high percentage uh, given, given the realm that it's in and what's at stake. So it's, it's very important that you understand the weightiness of this. These seven data points are agreed upon by almost every historian New Testament scholar, scholar of ancient literature and history in the entire world as being historical fact. So what are these seven data points? First, that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical person. We're not talking some Jesus uh, somewhere else. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Now, some of these scholars won't attribute the miracles to Jesus and things like that. That's another story. Regardless, they all say he was a real historical figure in first century Palestine. Bottom line. There, you, know, you know where you get skeptics? Online, internet community, the atheist people. On the, but no scholars. Scholars don't say that. People who know what they're talking about who have read the literature and studied the history will say that Jesus Christ really did exist. The second is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, dead. That he died, died, dead from crucifixion 
under Pontius Pilate. The third is the tomb was empty. The tomb was found empty by some of Jesus' women uh, followers three days after he had been buried. Four, that there were these post-resurrection appearances, meaning that there were individual people and groups of people, up to 500 people at one time, who swore, even to their deaths, that they saw Jesus bodily alive after he was dead. Up to 500 people at once. That rules out hallucination. 500 people can hallucinate all at once, but they can't all hallucinate about the same thing at once. So up to 500 people. So the apostles really believed that they saw Jesus alive again after he was dead. That's number four. Number five is the guy we've been talking about this morning, Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. His conversion was miraculous. It has to have an explanation. You don't go from hating a group of people to becoming one of them overnight without some explanation. So, and everyone agrees, every, every scholar agrees that the Apostle Paul had a, an amazing transformation overnight where he was hated Christians, was against Christians, and now all of a sudden he became one. Number six is James, brother of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus. You know, he thought Jesus was crazy. Actually, much of Jesus' family thought Jesus was crazy because some of the things he was saying. You know, he was allowing people to worship him. He was saying that he was God in the flesh. I mean, that's pretty crazy if it isn't true, right? If I walked around saying I was God, you guys would, well, you guys probably think I was joking because that's my demeanor. But if I really tried, if I really pushed it, said, no, 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 I really am. You guys would probably look to get, get me locked up for 72-hour psyche vow, right? So, so James, brother of Jesus, thought Jesus was crazy, and then Jesus died, and something happened, and now all of a sudden he believes. What, what could that have been? I don't know. Maybe Jesus appeared to him in bodily form. But James ended up becoming basically the pastor of the Jerusalem church. And then he was martyred for his belief, thrown off the temple and then beaten to death. So all, virtually all scholars believe that James' brother Jesus had this dramatic change. And then lastly, the early church exploded uh, onto the scene in the first century in the same location that the events happened. So if I told you guys that I had, I had killed somebody... I'm back in Dom. I killed somebody over there. Uh, there's no real way to verify that or falsify that. I mean, I guess you could go to scours, but it would be really difficult to prove that one way or another. But if I told you that somebody tried to break in here around 1030 and I killed them right before service started, I mean, there, that would be much easier to either prove or, or to falsify because it's right here. You guys are right here. And it happened just a few minutes ago. And that's what happened with the early church. Jesus rose from the dead and whoop, up pops this church saying Jesus rose from the dead. Right there where Jesus rose from the dead. So it would have been very easy to falsify this. So those are the seven data points that absolutely need an explanation. Because those data points are agreed upon by all scholars that this is historical fact. So what could possibly be the explanation of these 
seven data points. Well, I'm here to tell you there is, there are some alternative explanations. If that's, if that's what you want to call them. Let me, let me talk to you about a few of these. <laughs> the, uh, there are some people that said that Jesus just swooned, that he passed out on the cross and was mostly dead. And then, you know, I mean, he survived Roman crucifixion. He fooled all the guards into believing he was dead. He revived in the tomb and somehow being beaten to within an inch of his life, he rolled away the stone, he beat up all the guards, and then he presented himself to the disciples as his living Messiah. Like, no, you need to be in the infirmary. You are, like, that, that just doesn't happen. But we have some people who believe that that would uh, explain, uh, and it might explain one or two of the, the data points, but here's part of the problem is you have to explain all the data points. You can't just explain one or two. That seems pretty ridiculous. He just passed out. We're, we're getting worse. Okay, it's not getting any better, okay? Um, there's another theory out there. I don't know if you've heard this one, Pastor, that Jesus had a twin brother. <laughs> Never mind that no one saw him for 33 years. And all of a sudden, he pops on the scene. Where did this guy come from, right? And, and here's another thing, too, just to show you how ridiculous that is. Identical twins... Um, at first, you may look at it and go, oh, man, I can't tell these people apart to save my life. Then you spend a couple minutes with them, and you're like, hot dang, these guys are totally different, right? Anybody who spent time with identical twins will tell you that after um, a week or two, it's easy to tell the difference. You're telling me the disciples who spent three years with Jesus, eating and drinking and sleeping with Jesus, didn't know that wasn't Jesus? Okay, that's pretty bad. And it's going, it's getting worse. Now remember, this is, these are the alternative explanations. This is where they go because they don't like Jesus resurrecting. Because if he's resurrecting, then that's got moral implications on their life. And they don't like that. So they make up this stupid nonsense of a resurrection is a miracle. So it can't be a resurrection because it's a miracle. That sounds pretty circular to me. That seems pretty biased to me. Anyhow, I'm off track. We're getting from bad to worse. Does this next one, does this really need a refutation? Do I really need to refute this? I mean, come on. No, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna do that. That's, it's, it's not happened. Listen, the Bible has dealt with some of these uh, alternative explanations. The Bible has already dealt with some of these stupid explanations. The resurrection seems to be that Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead seems to be the only explanation that nicely fits the data. And that's what historians look for. And all these other explanations, they're bad, but those are the best they can come up with. Those are the best they got. Now here's where it gets good. 
here's where we have built the foundation now for the resurrection power. Here is the foundation. If Jesus rose from the dead, then our worldview is true to the exclusion of every other worldview. If Jesus rose from the dead, then our prophet, our Messiah, Jesus, is God to the exclusion of every other prophet and guru. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then our holy book is true to the exclusion of every single holy book. the Bible is true then that means it can be trusted so what does the Bible say see how I did that I didn't just say the Bible said I could do that and I could do that with pretty much everybody in here because you're all believers and I could use this to wag you over the head with if I want to because this is our ultimate authority but skeptics don't like that, so I have to build a foundation. I have to show that this book is true first, and then we can take stuff from this book and show the truthfulness and how it plays out in real life. So what does our Bible say about this resurrection power? Well, my Bible tells me that God set up moral boundaries that human beings need to live by, but every day because of my own free will, I choose to rebel and go outside those moral boundaries, offending an all-holy and all-perfect God. There's power in understanding my situation. My Bible tells me because I've offended an all-holy God that I deserve to be punished. And that punishment is eternal separation from God. There's power in knowing the consequences of my actions. My Bible tells me that separation from God is horrific and it is eternal. It is forever. There's power in knowing the gravity of my situation. My Bible tells me that God doesn't want to be separated from us because he loves us. He's our creator. So God decided to make things right. He came down as a man. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live, and he died so that I could accept that pardon when I asked for forgiveness of my trespasses. There's power in knowing the solution to my problem. My Bible tells me that if evil is real and it's seeking my destruction, but that evil is subject to the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. There's power in knowing how I can fight evil. My Bible tells me that God is our protector to those he loves, and if we cry out to him, he will be our defender and our advocate. There's power in knowing that God will fight for me. And my Bible tells me that when pressed by the world, the Holy Spirit will come and give us the right things to say. There's power in knowing that God will help you with unbelievers. And my Bible tells me that God will never leave me nor forsake me. There's power 
in knowing that God will give us peace during turmoil. And my Bible tells me that as children of God, we can anoint with oil and people can be healed. We can lay hands on the sick and they will recover. There's power in knowing that even my physical body must submit to the mighty name and authority of Jesus Christ. And my Bible tells me that God not only saved me, but he changed my heart. He took it from stone and he made it flesh. He continues to transform my life. There's power in knowing that God won't leave me the way he found me. If Jesus rose from the dead, then our worldview is true. Jesus' words were true and our Bible is true. And our Bible says a lot about the kind of power that resides in the people that follow him. So no matter how I feel, no matter what I want to believe, I have to trust based upon the evidence that this is true and what it says is true. So no matter how I feel, I'm going to go with what is true. We're going to step into a time at the altar. If pastor would come and the deacons and the worship team. This time at the altar is going to be for those who want to seek the power of God. I want to make something clear. I always do at every altar call is this. There, there's some impression that some people have that people who come up to the altar must be dealing with some major sin in their life. Hey, that might be the case. The altar is the best place for you. But from my experience, and my experience here at this church is that some of the most righteous and holy people are at the altar every Sunday. So just because you come to the altar doesn't mean you're dealing with anything major. Sometimes you just want to be closer to God. Sometimes you just want an encounter with Jesus. You want something that's going to get you through the week. Do you have an unsaved loved one? The power of the resurrection can help you reach them. Do you have a physical ailment? The power of the resurrection can heal you. Do you have an emotional wound? The power of the resurrection can help you overcome it. Do you have a situation that doesn't seem to have any answers? The power of the resurrection can give you clarity. Do you struggle with sin? The power of the resurrection can help you resist temptation. Are you at the end of your rope?
benediction or prayer. God.